Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for finding Whitehall Sources. Before we get stuck into the politics for you, a quick message from The Resident. These hotels, like their choice in podcasts, are exceptional. Whether you're travelling for business or leisure, at The Resident, you're offered the best rooms, prices and advice for your needs as well. We are so thrilled to be brought to you in association with The Resident, who have proudly backed us since day one. When we're booking a stay in London or Liverpool, it's The Resident we head to and it's The Resident you should head to. To find out more, click residenthotels.com. Welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum McDonald. It is lovely to be with you. It's Thursday the 13th of April. Thank you very much for finding us. May I encourage you already, if you're new, to press follow or subscribe, depending on what app you're using to listen to us, so that you never ever miss an episode ever again. It is still parliamentary recess and lots of things feel a little bit recessy, don't they, um, at the moment. It's quite quiet, largely, apart from Labour's attack ads, which we'll discuss on this episode. Apart from that, it's local election perda time. That means there's very little we can talk about during this pending period, building up to lots of local elections in various parts of the UK, actually, in the next few weeks. So we'll keep an eye on those campaigns and we'll keep you posted on what we can based on election broadcasting rules. If you're new, welcome. If you've been here from the start, thank you. And if you're a recent joiner, then welcome along. You will know by now that usually Kirsty Buchanan is here, former special advisor to Theresa May. As she told you a couple of episodes ago, uh, Kirsty's been in hospital getting an operation, so we're waiting for her to be fighting fit before we welcome her back to the podcast. And of course, we're continuing to send her best wishes on her recovery. And Frankie Leach, well, she's still on holiday. Everything is feeling a bit like recess, as I was saying. Uh, but I'm still here, fear not. And so for today's episode, just something slightly different again for you. Let me know what you think of this, really. It's a slightly different format to usual and normal service will resume. But today I want to let you hear from two different spagoos. It will catch on, I promise. Special guests, that is. Uh, we'll hear on this episode from Aesop Bennett, who was a speechwriter to Liz Truss for those fateful 40-odd days. He will tell us actually about his experiences of working with Liz Truss at various departments before reaching number 10 Downing Street. And later on in the podcast, we'll hear from Tom Baldwin. Now, Tom worked with Ed Miliband when he was the Labour leader. Um, and Tom shares some really interesting stories, actually, about the build-up to the 2015 general election. And we do a little bit of hypothesising with Tom about what the world would look like if Ed Miliband had won that election. Um, and we do a lot of other interesting sort of tangents with Tom, actually. It was an interview I said to him, it was a conversation afterwards that took me to places that I hadn't really 
predicted or anticipated, which I think actually is the sign of quite an interesting conversation. Uh, so you'll hear from each of them in turn on this episode. Please share your thoughts with me. I'm feeling very lonely without my Kirsty and my Frankie. So even if you want to just drop by and say hello on email, that would be lovely. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. Before we get to them, let's consider what's happened since we last spoke. Joe Biden has been visiting Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland to mark 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement. That has passed largely without incident, although there has been a lot of criticism of the kind of optics of the whole thing, to use that very political phrase, how it's looked, how it's appeared and frankly how it's been choreographed. That's part of the crucial part of all of this. Elsewhere, the SNP is in something of a crisis. In fact, by this point, multiple crises. Such is the level of chaos and intrigue in Scottish politics right now that we have started, as of Nicola Sturgeon's resignation, a sister podcast. It is called Holyrood Sources. You can find that for free wherever you're listening to this podcast, actually. Drift over and have a little listen. You'll hear from Jeff Aberdeen, who used to work with Alex Salmond as Chief of Staff. And you hear from Andy McKeever, who was the Scottish Conservatives Director of Communications. And in the previous couple of episodes, you'll also hear from Jean Freeman, who was Health Secretary in Scotland, and Kate Forbes, who ran for the leadership. It is an exclusive interview with Kate Forbes. That's in that feed. So go and search for Hollywood Sources for more on all of that. I suppose the other big controversy in the last few days has been around Suella Braverman. Baroness Varsi, Conservative peer, says the Home Secretary turns almost every issue into a cultural race war. That's certainly an issue that's not going away and something to which I'm sure we'll return on Whitehall Sources. Let's get stuck into this episode, and here comes Asa Bennett. Hello, Asa. Great to be here. Hello. It's lovely to have you. Now, we always start with our former special advisors, who we like to say become our spagoos, our special guests. It's something I'm trying to get to catch on. Um, we always like to get a bit of your CV. Uh, what is your yes. story? Bring us right up to date. So my story was very simple, really. Um, and that I was a journalist for you know, well, nearly 10 years. Um, five of them was at the Daily Telegraph, uh, I was on the opinion desk, uh, writing, commissioning people, dealing with our columnists. Um, and once we get through Brexit, those mad years, and I was Brexit commissioning editor, really getting a nerdy specialism about that, <laughs> um, I then was approached by the Department for Trade uh, to come in and basically help punch up the comms uh, for then Secretary of State Liz Truss. Um, and it was a whole sort of shebang of you're writing remarks, op-eds, you know, all sorts of projects to work with her on, you know, video scripts, all sorts of editing and tinkering. Um, and it seemed to go so well that she took me with her into the Foreign Office. Um, and then even more so when she then became Prime Minister, followed her into number 10. Um, I personally thought that she may well go the distance, uh, you know, and uh, maybe we'll see how we go for the <laughs> 50 days. Oh, sorry, yeah, years. Right. me wrong. I think, I think it was an accelerated <laughs> process, shall we say. Um, and uh, But nonetheless, it was an absolute roller coaster from start to finish. Yeah, I can imagine. Do you know, it's interesting, actually, that you, you had been with her in, in departments as well. For you, what was it like kind of transitioning between departments into number 10 as well? Is that a kind of weird thing to get used to, or does it feel like quite a natural move? I think every change of department or corner of government uh, required some adjustment. So when, you know, when, when, for example, going from journalism into Department for Trade, mm. um, 
already having to get used to the kind of Whitehall culture of, you know, civil servants liking to discuss things and general sort of committees and people deliberating over things. Um, obviously, that has its advantages to ensure that once things are out, it's all absolutely copper-bottomed and everything else. Uh, but massive disadvantage, things take ages, and particularly when you're trying to you know, agree mm. what effectively is, you know, a very personal speech someone stands up and reads out. You'll have learned lots of officials saying, ah, oh, but you need to include this caveat. You need to include this subclause. You know, have you thought about this? I would put it this way. And you have to then basically fight the corner for what the speaker is going to say. Um, and so it's that sort of navigating in a very collegiate way, the mm. kind of many cooks who want to stick their spoons in the broth. And so when you go into the foreign office, um, obviously they, you know, one of the great officers of state. They know this. And so it's people who've been desk officers, you know, world-leading experts on countries and issues that, you know, will know these things back to front. The challenge there almost, in the comms way, is to try and, you know, get out of the ivory towers mm. to help string together theses, pieces that make sense, are relatable, are domestic, that bring home, you know, why the foreign secretary is flying around the world to insert country here, to really bring home to, you know, someone in Govan or, um, you know, or Guildford, uh, why things matter, you know, when they're sort of talking about nuclear disarmament, say. Um, and then, of course, number 10, that's, I mean, again, that's on sort of turbocharge, isn't it? The <laughs> yeah. kind of programme for national government, you're having to then help tell the story of, you know, what's happening there. Um, and yeah, I think it's, well, every week was something new, of course, you know, the first week you end up have the, you know, the Queen's death and having to think about that and the legacy of the London Bridge Project you're coming to its very sad and tragic fruition. Mm. Um, and then events after that, like um, the mini-budget, and which was very much a treasury-led matter. Um, I think number 10, I was all number 10 was doing was just putting out an op-ed in the name of the PM for the Sun newspaper saying what a terrific you know, event, fiscal moment that would be. Um, and uh, of course things like the energy intervention as well, let's not forget. Um, and then after the second month, the kind of rapid denouement with uh, the conference speech um, and everything else that ensued after that. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear about that kind of, you know, the kind of moves, I suppose, through departments and things. Did you enjoy number 10 the most? Um, I, gosh, I, I really need to, that, that's a question I've not actually been asked. There you go. <laughs> so I I Welcome to, to the podcast. I think it's hard to say you can enjoy the experience in number 10 that ends that way. Mm. Um, certainly it was the most unforgettable and memorable part of my time in government. Um, you know, uh, I, I think in terms of enjoyment, it would be the Foreign Office. Mm. Uh, that, uh, that was the moment we were really getting into your stride, where Department for Trade, I was cussing my teeth, we were finding out how to really take the argument forward for free trade. It was like a roller, it was a whole conveyor belt of free trade agreements, you know, practically one every week. Uh, it felt like having to learn about new countries, the histories overnight. Um, but then the Foreign Office was where it was trying to really deploy those skills and then also be able to talk about, well, effectively, such gritty and serious issues as, you know, war, sanctions, how to really argue, you know, hammer home the awfulness of that war in Ukraine, how to keep the comms challenge, you know, how to really grip the comms challenge mm. of explaining to a, a very fatigued public after you know, many months in why we have to, you know, keep backing Ukraine, why, you know, the relentless tide of war crimes mean, you know, many people feel jaded, mm. but, you know, to try and find fresh angles and to keep that momentum going on, you know, sanctioning this, you know, Russian oligarch, sanctioning going after Abramovich and everything else, trying to really bring that home, particularly when, as we knew, the fallout um, in terms of energy prices, inflation, cost of living, 
um, was starting to really hit home. Yeah, it's fascinating actually, and it's you know that's what this podcast is all about: is finding out what it's what life is like actually for you guys who are who are kind of in there. Um, we'll come back to a bit more of your experience, but I do want to talk about Liz Truss, who has once again been in the news this week. Um, she's been speaking at the Margaret Thatcher Freedom Lecture. That's what she's been doing at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C. Um, I mean, she does create a bit of buzz when she speaks Liz Truss still. What is it about her mm. that has that sort of headline magnetism, I suppose? And, and what is it about her that, that leads her to want to do these sorts of speeches still? So I think what leads her to want to do these speeches is almost the same answer to both questions. Mm. Why, why she attracts such attention and what leads her to do these speeches is because she has that so almost ideological indefatigability mm. um, that, you know, she argues these things and says these things because she believes it. Um, and, you know, granted, yes, when she was prime minister, she then had to fudge and, you know, sack quasi quartering and roll back on, you know, tax cuts. But I think that was obviously a, a real, that sort of rail politic, that sort of last roll of the dice attempt to try and survive. But in the heart of hearts, the reason it was such a bitter blow is because she really passionately believe that in tax cuts, supply-side reform then, still would now, and so is not going to be a politician who comes out and says, you know, I've really thought about this, and actually maybe there were some mistakes. Instead, it's that the programme was right, the implementation leave much to be desired, and that's why in the speech there she was, you know, many politicians would shy away, but mm. then she runs towards the sound of gunfire, as it were, <laughs> um, and is happy to then say that, you know, I, I, I'm going to stick my head above the parapet and say that, you know, effectively embracing the kind of mill wall reputation she now has after mm. this um but but so you know it's still right to argue for you know low taxes and all the things that you know under thatcher made britain great um and we need to do so again mm. and that's why in the same breath um she's trying to rail against this whole tendency towards you know big big government and uh the ever encroaching size of the state i suppose uh a snidey commentator, Asa, might say that if you run to, away. if yeah. you run towards the sound of gunfire, you're probably going to get shot. And you know, I think that's where she's laid her career on the line for mm. that. Um, in that, having read her essay in the Telegraph, effectively she was trying to say that's what she did. You know, she knew that the stakes were high, but the need for action then was even greater that, you know, almost she would have regretted it if she had sort of pulled back. If she, you know, there is alternative history, which I know your listeners have only so much time for, um, where, you know, if she just stood up and, you know, had Quasi Quartang in the mini-budget announced precisely just those tax cuts and that's it, you know, and that she had pledged during the leadership campaign, that the markets were expecting, that the party was expecting, rather than saying, oh, and here's the rabbit out of the hat, we're going to, you know, abolish the 45p top mm, tax rate. Mm. Maybe she would have survived longer. Maybe the conference wouldn't have been such a you know bloodbath. But then, you know, she felt clearly in her instincts that she wanted to make an impact. She didn't want to sort of kick that can down the road. And at the time, um, I think she would say that the forecasts were showing um, that, you know, we would have had 2% growth this year. Whereas instead, now we're seeing, you know, it's a much lesser prospect. I think you know, the IMF, yes, forecast track record, very checkered, um, is suggesting something much less rosy. So I think that's why she could still argue that in, in that world where she managed to get on with it and the party was behind there, things could have been much rosier. But then, I think we both know mm. that part of the job in politics is not just, you know, having bright ideas, bold ideas and driving them forward, but it's making that argument, you know, and bringing people with you. Yeah, and making and so I think it work. It's the, yeah. And that's, in essence, the part of the leadership. I think it's that because she believes these things so strongly, she almost then 
didn't feel it was so necessary to like lay that ground um, because she felt maybe the conservative leadership contest was enough of a mandate yeah. uh, that she could then, you know, go go further if she liked. When instead the party is such a tricky coalition as we see um, that, yeah, it proved much more complicated. How much do you, regret might be the wrong word, but how much does it frustrate you that whenever Liz Truss re-enters the public eye, whether in this speech or in any number of other sort of uh, other speeches, that the legacy is one of economic disaster. And actually there's not something a bit more positive to take away from from her time as Prime Minister. Mm, I think, I mean, I, I definitely regret that it turned out that way. I know she'll regret it most yeah. bitterly of all, um, given that, you know, effectively she the most you can offer then is a parable in what not to do and in, in sort of, you know, almost a playbook of, uh, you know, yes, that effectively says that, yes, you can go at this thing full pelt, but then, you know, her, her rationale, her, her explanation is um, a slightly sort of fiddly narrative in which she then says effectively that she was a long-term rebel against the system who knew from it being inside the treasury you know, how deeply entrenched the orthodoxy was, and yet then seemed to think that that system would work to deliver something that was deeply you know, anti-orthodox, that was challenging it. Um, so I, I think she'll have plenty of time to stew over this, and you know there'll be plenty you know, of regrets in that. Um, but I've forgotten the question. Well, it was about your... <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's okay. It's kind yeah. of a personal reflection, yeah. I think, I'm looking for yes. on, on the frustration that, you know, there is... I, I think there's very little doubt that we have learned yeah. on this podcast that advisors and politicians on the whole go into the jobs they do because they want to improve something and do something and make it oh, better. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. If we take yeah. that as the general rule, I just wonder how much frustration there is that when, when Liz Truss gets talked about it, it is it does conjure up memories of real turmoil and difficulty. So it, it, it's, it, it's definitely really tragic that the whole experience at the end is it ended that way. Um, I think in a, in a way that the whole team and her most of all regrets. Um, but then look, when you're a speechwriter, you're, you almost have to try and develop that sort of mimetic ability to try and understand what your principal would say if they had the time mm. to sit and, you know, bash it out on their laptop. Um, so you're almost trying to sort of, even if you don't necessarily agree with an argument hundred percent, you try and get in the head, you try and sort of add flesh to the bones, if you like, of the story. And certainly, you know, when working with from trade, I saw someone who really wanted to, you know, do a world of good, try to, you know, really deliver um, and change things in terms of, you know, the trade deals, trying to really open up markets, trying to benefit British exporters. Um, I saw the, you know, sense of conviction in Foreign Secretary when she was, um, you know, helping and pursuing and securing the uh, freedom and release of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe mm. um, and, you know, making the argument for why, you know, needs to be, you know, four square behind Ukraine um, and, you know, rallying support among international partners. You know, I, I saw someone there who had a real determination steel, who was working, you know, practically every hour throughout the day, um, you know, basically rarely took time off because she was so committed to, you know, work and piling through all these things, taking on so many challenges. I mean, it was still flying off on trips, you know, balancing all sorts of projects at, at the Foreign Office. Mm. Um, and then, you know, clearly had real big ambitions as Prime Minister to then see it go off the rails so much. Obviously, that that is, you know, it's a wrench um, yeah. on one level, because then, you know, to put it this way, you, you start with the great promise in speech writing. You start with the great visions and the grand plans you can help unveil. Um, and, you know, you're having conversations, what, 
certainly I was, uh, where, you know, as you go into the first month or so, you're starting to think about the, the big stories you want to tell, the narratives for the government to share among Whitehall about what will be happening over the coming months and thinking about, you know, 2023, what the narrative will be then, the sort of when it starts to be the investment would start rolling in and jobs, 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 and this is the, you know, the fruits of growth and all that. And then it's said to have the kind of trench warfare, you know, back foot comms you're having to put out where it's almost trying to keep the thing alive where i remember the conference speech had the um slightly bittersweet write-up in the spectator of like it's of, of like the highlight of a really terrible conference <laughs> was like, at least it was the so highlight. You, were you involved in writing the conference speech yeah that was my uh yeah, crowning glory right okay um and I say that also because, uh, you know, another reason why it's even more of a personal roller coaster was um, that uh, the final week of the premiership, uh, the 26th of October, I know very well now, not just because it was the day that Liz resigned as prime minister, but it was also the day that uh, my first child was born. Oh, wow. um, And so I basically was spending the first the few days before that uh, in hospital um, awaiting, you know, waiting the delightful personal news. It was such a sort of maelstrom of emotions, if you like. And then, you know, having the having the lobby text me, you know, old friends at the Telegraph message me most days then saying, what's the atmosphere like in there? And I was like, I could tell you about the hospital. Let me bring you right onto now. the maternity ward. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's so interesting. In, term, in terms of working as a speechwriter for, specifically for Liz Truss, but, you know, generally mm. that, that responsibility of getting the words for a prime minister... Um, did you feel the weight of that responsibility? What is what is that responsibility like? So I think the responsibility, it weighs heavily on the shoulders because you know that every sentence is going to be poured over by you know, Westminster and beyond yeah. the rest of the world. Um, I mean, in a very small way, I remember, for example, when in my first speech I worked with her on, uh, which was trade secretary, um, I got I managed to, you know, Add a, add a jolly soundbite in when she was flying off to Japan to sign the free trade agreement there. Um, and it was basically it was how fitting it is to be in the land of the rising sun to witness the dawn of global Britain. Ah, you Very know, strong. Sun, metaphor, strong nice, leaning hard done. on that. And it was the first line she said that down the barrel of the camera. It was on PA in the newsreels. And obviously that was the soundbite. The sun went with it, all the rest of it and mm. everyone else. Um, and uh, it actually, at the risk of doing a massive digression, can I tell you a slight sort of illustration of Whitehall politics yeah, that went do. alongside that. So there was a slight sub-debate I had to have before that line was put to her, um, in which uh, officials basically worried about whether Land of the Rising Sun was basically offensive okay. to the Japanese or mm -hmm. racist. And so there to be lots of conversations with the embassy about, you know, will this land okay? Will there be, not be a diplomatic gaffe? And I effectively had to do my own research, send memos around to say, you know, guys, it's basically like if you rock up in Britain and say, I'm great to be an Albion. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it's antiquated, sure, but the poetic effect is clear. Um, and then obviously, yeah, they, they all generally agreed and the line went through. But the, the point, I guess, is that you know, that um, more highlighting it, show that the level of, you know, people worrying about things and wanting to just kind of cover the minister's back, the, the level that officials go to and, you know, working hard on this um, is something like that. Um, so to try and bridge back onto the main answer, um, when in, you're kind of writing it for someone who's increasingly more important, increasingly more studied and analysed, yeah, that weight and burden only grows. Mm. So um, I think the greatest bit of it was then for the conference speech when, yeah, everyone knew, that you know, this was a prime minister who was able to fight for a leadership. And it was, you know, her, her longest speech she'd ever give, the most personal speech, um, because she was, you know, really having to open up about herself, 
to you know explain why it wasn't just you know just sort of fusty ideology but something that she really felt or what growth meant when she was growing up in paisley and leeds and um you know seeing that you know growth wasn't just you know numbers on a spreadsheet it was jobs to really help tell that story and um and also then just on a human level to kind of make sure she could deliver it with the same gusto knowing that you know everyone well practically so many people were masked and you know daggers at the ready um to try and sort of do her in practically it felt like mm. um, but to try and you know come out swinging that's that was the real aim and uh you need because it was all part of it is the performance and um, you know, part of it is actually writing the content you know get, getting the idea of the story that she needs to tell and then the other part is you know the internal politics around it making mm. sure she can you know, go and as she would say deliver did you have anything to do with the famous uh, cheese speech? I need to ask. Well before my time, that Fine. speech, I'm afraid. Just checking, Although good. It was an interesting exercise where, um, I mean, what did you think of the cheese speech? I mean, overall, I, th- I don't remember it, frankly, yeah. apart from the it's, that's a disgrace. And so I wonder if in some ways as a speechwriter, that is in some ways a success because there's a core message there that actually has yeah. landed. And as much as it is ridiculed and laughed at, I do wonder if there's something positive to take from that. So the, the kind of devil's advocate point I make in defence of the cheese speech is that if you're... Well, at the time, she was environment secretary mm, and you're course. speaking to the party faithful. So, you know, and the party faithful, party conference inevitably invites the kind of, I want to say in the most polite sense, rabble-rousing, that kind of lines that people will get to really cheer and all that. How do you get people excited about the environment? Well, you know, food and drink <laughs> yeah. is something people really understand. <laughs> I mean, there's something that she knew at trade. It's you know what the NFU, the farmers, would kick off about most, you know, and Jamie Oliver and all the rest. People really care about food and drink. And so I suppose that's why she was able to get really enthusiastic about it. Mm. Um, I suppose the only, well, the lesson she would have taken from that is maybe to kind of control the performance, mm. to not sort of zing off in the corner get and away. say, you know, and what was it? I'm, I'm going to go to Beijing to open up new port markets. That's right. And then, like, smile and wait for applause. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole metaphor in there, I think, about how I want to have the British apple at the top of the tree. <laughs> and it was it was basically a lot of fruit and food and drink there, because, yeah, it's what we all understand, eh? Absolutely. Uh, Asa, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. It's so good to speak to you. Great to try. Thank, thank you, you, thank you. Tom, thanks for joining. Um, I'm just saying goodbye to Asa, so let me just do that. Asa, thanks very much. Really appreciate that. Great to be there. Thank you for having me. All the best. We'll catch you again soon. Stay with me on Whitehall Sources. Lots more to come. We're about to dive into our conversation with Tom Baldwin, who used to work with Ed Miliband and was with him during the campaign for the 2015 general election. Tom will explain where he thinks politics has got to now, what went wrong during that campaign, and we wander down a little bit of a hypothetical as well. What would the UK look like if Ed Miliband had won in 2015? That's uh, some of the stuff that Tom will tell us here on Whitehall Sources. Your thoughts on all you're hearing, please get in touch. I'm very lonely. Hello at whitehallsources.com is the email address. Now, far be it from us to advertise political party conferences, but one of the major political parties is heading to Liverpool in 2023 for theirs. Hang on a minute. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, excellent hotels in exceptional locations. Now, I've just been checking and I can actually confirm that The Resident has one of its excellent hotels in the exceptional location of Liverpool. Phil, who stayed there in February, says the location is perfect for shopping, restaurants, pubs and clubs, all within two minutes walking, and yet the hotel itself was very quiet. 
That sounds ideal for politicals for party conference, or if you're on a leisurely visit to Liverpool, for example, stay at The Resident. To book your stay, click residenthotels.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Let's welcome Tom Baldwin to Whitehall Sources. Tom, hello. Hello. Great to speak to you. Now, we always start with our special guests um, who have formerly worked for whoever, just with a bit of a rundown of your CV. Who have you worked for? What's your background? Let us get to know you a little. Um, well, for about 20 years, I was a journalist. Um, most of that time I spent on The Times um, in Westminster and Washington. Um, I then left in 2011 to go and work for Ed Miliband as a senior advisor when he was leader of the opposition. Uh, after the 2015 election defeat, I uh, went off and wrote a book about technology and its relationship to our politics and our media. Mm. Uh, then I uh, helped run the People's Vote campaign, which is now sort of airbrushed out of history, but it was quite a thing at the time. Yeah. Um, uh, since then, I've been uh, writing again. I've got a couple of books, which will probably see the light of day in the next 12 months. Great. Okay, keep us posted on that. I was about to say Control-Alt-Delete was the book, wasn't it, about um, yes. te technology's relationship? We can, we can give it a plug, Tom, assuming it's still available. It's all good. Uh, yeah, Control-Alt-Delete about um, relationship with politics, which is really fascinating, actually. Uh, how do you... This is the next question we regularly ask, is how you reflect on your time as an advisor? Because um, without wishing to prejudice this, the general feeling is, in hindsight, it was great, but in a lot of moments at the time, it was really quite mad. Um, I would say my general feeling in hindsight is that it was quite mad. And um, you know, these jobs are a privilege and there's a lot of lot resting on them. They're not a game. Yeah. And I think quite a lot of people now regard it as rather exciting to be part of a game. But I, I've always thought politics has real impact on people's lives. And I think part of the problem with our politics now is people think it's uh, a sport mm. uh, a pursuit and I think they've lost sight of the impact down the line. 
That's really interesting. What what? How does that manifest itself? I suppose. What are the kind of symptoms of that? Uh, the symptoms are a you know losing an election, which is what we did, mm. and the consequences of that. I mean, one of my big memories of 2015 is in that election campaign, we had one day, just one, where Europe led the news and David Cameron's promise to have an in-out referendum. One day, that led the news. There were more than 20 days when Scotland led the news, which went straight into Tory messaging and the Tory attack ads on Ed Miliband being propped up by Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon. And we couldn't get this story about Europe running. Mm. The media just weren't interested in it. They took turns to go up to Scotland and talk about the new uh, electoral landscape in Scotland and what that meant if there's a home parliament and so on. And the consequences of losing that election meant that we had that Brexit referendum. We've got an economy which is going to be stunted forevermore, 4% lower growth year on year. And we're going to feel that impact. So losing an election wasn't just losing a game. It's going to have impact on my children and my children's children. Wow. When you say that, that sort of brings a whole new depth, actually, to the weight that you carried as an advisor in there at the time. Is is that fair to say? Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, look, you know, it's a team effort, and it's a team effort which, you know, takes responsibility for defeat as well as for victory. Mm. Um but, you know, obviously, you know, we didn't do well enough. And, you know, we, I, I still take issue. You know, there's, a, there's always a problem in campaigns because history is written by the winners. And, you know, whatever went on beforehand tends to be sort of uh, caricatured. And I, I think one of, one of the things that you notice about British politics at the moment is there's a sort of a kind of narrative that comes out of every election campaign as if that's the sole truth and that's the only thing people need to take away and learn for the next one. And almost always it's an oversimplification and quite often it's completely wrong. Mm. And so you then see these mistakes reinforced in the following parliament and the following election campaign, and we never actually get down to tackling what's really the biggest problems in this country. That is absolutely fascinating, actually. In terms of, in ter- so all of that falls into the seeing it as a sport, seeing it as a game, and a game to sort of, I mean, th- th- I suppose part of the problem that feeds that is there are winners and losers. And, and so to that extent, there is a mindset of we've got to win, we've got to beat them. And that perhaps fuels that to some extent. Yeah, and I think it also fuels a sort of polarisation as, you know, you know, everything would be absolutely brilliant if we win and everything would be absolutely terrible if the other lot win. And, you know, there's a great speech by Barack Obama, which I, I keep going back to at the moment, uh, is at some graduation ceremony for American students. And he said, look, you know, life's complicated mm. and people have ambiguities, politicians have ambiguities. You know, good people do bad things. People we hate, turns out they love their children. Uh, A sense of getting some of that ambiguity and nuance back into politics, I think would be a massive step forward. Yeah. Do you see, here we are talking in the middle of April 2023, do you see the 
uh, I suppose, the kindling of, a, of an election campaign already. Would you say it's underway? No, um, because quite a lot will change before, I think, the election campaign is underway and we'll know it when we're underway. You won't need to ask a question. Um, at the moment, I think you're still seeing both main parties taking their shapes, forming their battle lines, if you like. Mm -hmm. In terms of how that worked when you were there and, and gearing up for an election, how do you pace that? Because one of the frustrations that I think we often hear, um, particularly now um, with the Labour Party, is they say they'd be better, but we don't understand how. They don't, they don't tell us how. There's not enough detail on what they would do and why they would be better. And I suppose that is about sort of electoral strategizing and, as I say, pacing that message, because perhaps they don't know yet. They need to refine some of the details so they can deliver it gung-ho. I think there's a bit of understanding about that, but it, it is a source of frustration. I see it from, you know, listeners on our radio program who text in and say, but what's the detail? What's the detail? So is, the, is there an element of sort of pacing yourself for an election campaign? Yeah, look, I think Keir Starmer is a very, very methodical mm. politician. And... He has said often, and you'll have heard him say this, um, that there were three stages to his leadership. The first was to decontaminate Labour and show that it was back in you know, back as a competitive political party that could form a government. The second was to show that the Tory record made them unfit for office. And the third is to show how Labour would change this country for the better. Now... You know, in the course of his leadership, we've had a global pandemic, an invasion of Ukraine, three prime ministers, four chancellors. Um, and I think he can take enormous credit for achieving the first two thirds of that strategy. And I think he would also accept that he hasn't done enough yet to show how Labour will change this country. And that's what the five missions are about. I think, you know, the, I'm interested in watching the media's reporting of it because at the moment it seems they can't work out whether they're sort of dull technocracy or vast and impossible overreach. Mm. I, I think people also don't quite understand the difference between a pledge and a mission. Yeah. Um, but there's also a risk, I think, here that one of the games, and it is a game, that this government is playing is it's getting people, rolling people out, saying, oh, you know, you know, what does Labour really stand for? Does it mean anything? Do, you know, do, you know, and that's almost trying to provoke Labour into overreaching. If you look back at 1997, the most successful campaign Labour has had in my lifetime, certainly, those five pledges, they had minuscule policy offers. What was the policy offer on the NHS, do you know? No. It was spend £100 million more on cutting waiting lists by removing red tape. £100 million. Mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 these were tiny, tiny steps in a certain direction. And I think there's a, the, the, you know, there's a, there's a danger when people say, oh, we don't see the big vision, that you are trying to sort of tempt Labour into saying more than it should say at this stage of the campaign. Understood. That's an interesting one too, because in, in light of recent, I suppose, tactics, strategies by Labour, 
which are these Twitter attacks, I suppose, on Rishi Sunak, uh, particularly, personally on him, um, in terms of uh, who has been locked up and who has not. And there's been lots of debate and discussion about the figures and the years that have been involved, uh, the years that have been included in those figures um, and whether they're accurate or not, whether it's fair or not. I suppose I'm quite struck by the idea of these sorts of attack ads. And one of my considerations is, would we only ever see something like these on Twitter, actually? Is that the exact place that these things, in inverted commas, are at home, but you'd never see it strapped to a lamppost during an election campaign? Um, well, I'm, I'm, I suspect I'm a bit older than you. In fact, <laughs> I, um, I know I'm older than you. I, I, I remember, you know, the Tories running billboards with Tony Blair you know, uh, with demonic eyes. I remember them making spurious claims about Labour's spending plans in the previous election, 1992, Labour's tax bombshell. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we've seen uh, hard, negative campaigning, particularly, I think, by the right over the last few decades. Um, they, you know, it's clearly been successful because they've won more often than they've lost. Mm. Um and you know, I'm I'm not going to make the mistake which um, always used to annoy me most when I was working in the leave the opposition's office of former officials coming out and providing running commentary Absolutely. on everything that Labour Party's doing. You know, we we used to refer to it as dipping, <laughs> and you know, I'm I'm not across the polling. The testing they've done, or the all all the strategy, I can sense why they're doing it. In that they feel frustrated that they're making big, worthy policy announcements about crime and law and order and sentencing and justice, and they're getting very little media coverage for it. Whereas Rishi Sunak routinely gets five splashes and uh, supportive interview on multiple broadcast outlets for re-announcing things. Mm. And so I think this is an effort by the Labour Party to sort of grab the microphone. And whether it's successful, well, neither of us know yet. Yeah, indeed. That and that is, you know, that is crucial. I suppose a lot of the a lot of the kind of recent reaction in terms of measuring success of these things has been, well, they're getting talked about. You know, so maybe perhaps the grabbing the microphone is the is the best sort of analysis of what these sort of negative campaigning things do. I suppose the other thing about it is how long is everybody's memory? Because if we're not in an election campaign yet, putting these things out now may or may not swing any pendulum, you know, in nine months' time or, or next year when the campaign kicks off properly. So I suppose that's my other consideration is, is that, and again, it comes back to that pacing of an of an election campaign, I suppose. Yeah, look, one, one of the things which I think can valid, you know, legitimately be uh, argued that Ed Miliband's campaign didn't do enough of was settle its position on some big questions and big arguments. At this stage in that 2010 to 2015 Parliament, I think you know, it was generally perceived that we were doing quite well, we were still having the polls, and we were keeping our head above water by playing off this or that controversy, this or that scandal, making quite a lot of policy announcements. Mm. But I think you do need to settle where you are on issues which you know are going to come up in the general election and where there are big arguments to win, you should be using this period 
to go out and win some of those arguments. Is is the Labour Party well equipped when it comes to an election campaign? When it when you sort of compare and contrast where you were at with campaigning with the team, with the leader, with the overall party enthusiasm, and indeed, let's not forget, with the position of your opposition, um, as in the Conservative Party that you were facing, how do you compare the position you were in to the position the Labour Party is in now? Um, in some ways, we were in a better position. In some ways, we were in a worse position. I'm sorry to give a nuanced answer, but that's <laughs> well, very right welcome. One. Yeah. Um, the, you know, I mean, if you look at Keir Starmer's position, he has come from a standing start after you know, the worst defeat the Labour Party has had mm. in almost a century. He's gone from a standing start to a 20-point lead. Now, a lot of that's down to what's happened with this sort of implosion of this Conservative government or governments. Uh, I think some of the work that he did prior to that is why he was able to pick up so fast. Now, if it had been Ed Miliband's leadership, and I'm a huge fan of Ed Miliband, he's got massive qualities, but he was running a slightly different strategy. And I think after Liz Truss sort of basically sent our economy over the cliff, I don't think we would necessarily have been in the position to pick up so much support so rapidly because rightly or wrongly, we were perceived as a different kind of scary. And Keir Starmer's decontamination of the Labour Party and his move towards a hard-headed, pragmatic approach on the economy, I think has really paid him dividends in that people were able to look at the opposition and say, oh, yeah, look, they look they look like they might be able to do a better job. So even though a lot of it's default support for the Labour Party, it's because of the work he's done so far. Mm. Interesting. What would you say was the sort of was your high point working alongside Ed Miliband? What when I you know when I say what's your fondest memory? What's the sharpest memory you have? What do you where does your brain immediately go? I think what some of the things that Ed did were remarkable in that he changed things from opposition, which is very hard to do. Mm. So if you think about say phone hacking, he showed real courage there. No party leader has decided to take on your boss my former boss, Rupert Murdoch, like he did. It was a really high-risk move, and I think it changed the rules on newspapers, probably not enough. That was a big thing to do in opposition. I think Ed was trying to do something even bigger, which was to change the political weather to, as he said, sort of move the centre ground. I think by his own admission, he was less successful in doing that. But it was a very, very ambitious leadership. Mm. If I can take a hypothetical, just to try to sort of get a, get a feel, where would we have got to with Ed Miliband as Prime Minister? What, what do you think could have been hit the defining thing about an Ed Miliband premiership? The biggest thing is something he wouldn't have done. He wouldn't have had a re- in-out referendum on Europe. Mm. Yeah, at the time... This wasn't in the top 10 priorities of the British people. It was a priority for the Conservative Party. And I think the internal dynamics of the Conservative Party have done this extraordinary damage to this country. I mean, yeah, it's why David Cameron is forced to have a referendum. It's why he was unable to run a proper campaign in that referendum. 
is why Theresa May was unable to get a half-decent deal. It's why you end up with Boris Johnson and his ridiculous Brexit deal that he got. All of this has been about the internal dynamics concerned about us. Why we end up with Liz Truss, because 80,000 people of variable rates of sanity and in touchness with reality elected her as Prime Minister without recourse to British people at all. The Rishi Sunak wasn't even elected mm. because they didn't trust the Tory party membership anymore. So I, you know, simply by not being in hock to uh, increasingly crazed, deranged Conservative Party, we would have seen a very different last few years. Now, you know, it depends on what sort of victory Ed Miliband had won. If he'd won a majority, it'd been much easier. Uh, I think we were, you know, people would remember the attack ads on Ed Miliband were, you know, chaos uh, with Ed Miliband or strong and stable government with David Cameron. Um, what we've seen is a, a kind of level of chaos and polarisation and and degradation of our politics that no one even thought was possible in 2015. Mm. So no doubt people would have attacked Ed Miliband for all kinds of things, but we wouldn't be where we are now. We'd be in a better place. One of the things that comes up in conversations about the, this next phase, uh, building up to the next election, is that uh, perhaps it's just Labour's turn. That everybody's a bit narked off with the Conservatives. It's, it's been a chaotic, even last few months, but it's been a difficult time the last couple of years, is the, is the kind of narrative. And so it's just time for a change, basically. Is it ever simply someone's turn? Um, no, but sometimes more so than others. Mm. I, I, I think what you... Times Labour have won from opposition have almost always been at the end of a long period of Conservative government. You think 45 is after, you know, last Labour government being 1931. Mm. Uh, 1964, uh, last Labour government had been in 1951. 1970, uh, 1997, last Labour government had been 1979. So each time, absolutely the heart of the Labour campaign has been 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 years of Conservative misrule. It's time for change. That's an absolute. That's absolutely a heart of what an ex-Labour campaign needs to be about. Now, governments lose elections, oppositions don't win, and that's what people say. Opposition can lose them as well. Mm. If you look like you're scary, if you look like you're unelectable, as we were in 2019, then oppositions can just you just you're just counted out. Mm. Um, does Labour need to do more to win the next election rather than just sitting back and waiting for the Tories to lose it? Of course it does. And I think Keir Starmer realises that. Mm. Would you ever go back? Would you go back to be an advisor, Tom? Uh, no one's asking. <laughs> I've got my books to write. That's you know, <laughs> You're quite happy. Um, I, I, can't, I cannot imagine the circumstances where I'd go through that level of daily humiliation and pain again. <laughs> uh, gosh, I haven't even asked you about the People's Vote campaign. So this was all about the new referendum um, on Brexit. Uh, I suppose, you know, at, at the time, it, it wasn't without merit. There was a feeling of per perhaps actually things have changed and we want to go for this again. Um, would you say that that cause is lost now? That actually, that you know, the, the idea of a next referendum is gone? I think it's gone for now. And no one's talking about it being... A prospect, yeah, you know, well, very few people are talking about it being a prospect in 
the next parliament or possibly the next decade. I mean, there may come a time when Europe becomes a two-tier thing again, where the inner core of European countries want to pursue a political union and the outer core don't. And there may be a time when Britain can uh, build a, a relationship perhaps with that second tier, but that's not on the agenda now. What's on the agenda now is, are there pragmatic steps that you can take to mitigate the worst impacts of Brexit? Steps which this government, you know, they managed to sort out the Northern Ireland Protocol, which which was also its responsibility because they had all voted for it. Um, is there, are there many other moves that you can make to ease the friction for exporters, for young people who want to study abroad, and so on and so forth? Mm. Yes, there are. Um, and that, that's, what, that's what the agenda in Europe is now. Pragmatic, hard-headed, rather than ideological. I, I do worry that the Conservative Party, despite getting that Northern Ireland Protocol deal through, is still too ideologically committed to a particular idea of Britain, an idea of Brexit, to take those hard-headed, pragmatic steps forward. Mm. Can you see a point in the not, in the not, you know, impossible future where there is another referendum and the UK votes to rejoin the EU? I can't see it happening now. I can't see the circumstances in which it would happen now. But, you know, who would have thought in 1997 or 1990 or mm. even 2005 that we'd been having an in-and-out referendum in Europe in, in a few years' time? Um, you know, politics moves around. And so, like, you never say never. Um, you know, I think the People's Vote campaign is actually an interesting example of what we were talking about earlier in that the idea of a new referendum to settle this question and resolve the chaos that Theresa May being unable to get a deal past her own backbenches was creating was actually a pragmatic solution to a political problem. Mm. But in order to get heard, our campaign almost had to be part of the polarising problem we were trying to solve. And so we had to mobilise Remainers, and we got three of the four biggest marches London's ever seen out in the streets. But we then became part of this shrill, divisive argument, rather than where I think kind of our, our real hope of succeeding would have been as a pragmatic solution to settle a problem. Mm. And just as a final thought, sort of tying a lot of these themes together, around polarisation, division, uh, seeing politics as a game to win or to lose or to beat the other side, is there a way back from this? If that is accepted as the place we are in, and I think there's plenty of evidence for it, is there a way back? Yes, I hope so. And I think, you know, if you look at the demonstrations in France over raising their pension age to 64 mm. I mean, we've got 66 and moving 68, and then we'll just shrug so we'll find. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, we've got an incredibly stable understanding electorate, probably more stable and more understanding than our politicians deserve in some ways. There's a, there's a huge uh, line of credit that we've got in our, in our democracy. And I think most people are actually not part of this polarised game. I mean, when you look mm -hmm. at some of the sort of ridiculous stances taken on both sides on some of the culture war stuffs, including trans, that's not where most people are. 
It is not the issue which people are debating over their dinner tables. You know, people want to be able to get a GP appointment. They want to know that, you know, if they've got a mortgage, it's not going to go through the roof because some bizarre experiment being conducted by Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. They also want probably a little bit of hope that we're not just got a government as we've got now, some would argue, I'd argue, which is sort of going to competently manage down our living standards in a sort of management consultant way and give us a free phone call to our families before they make us redundant. <laughs> you know, we're not going off the cliff, we're slowly picking our way down to the bottom of the cliff now, but we're still going to end up at the bottom of the cliff. Mm. So I think people just want, I mean, Kirstana, you, I think one of the best lines in his conference speech last year was ordinary hope. And that, that sort of sensible, hard-headed, you know, I want my services to work, I want my trains to run on time, I want the police to come out if my house is burgled, I want my kids to think that there's some point in working at school. Though that shouldn't be beyond a British government. It's certainly not beyond the British people. No one's asking for the earth. It's not unreasonable what people want. So I think if you can build a campaign and a consensus around that kind of ordinary hope, yeah, I do think we've got a chance of escaping some of this lunacy of the last few years. Tom, it's really interesting speaking to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. My thanks to Tom and indeed to Asa Bennett, who started this episode as well. Your thoughts very welcome on this episode. What did you like? What didn't you like? What did you learn? What is your analysis of what you've heard? Email hello at whitehallsources.com. And if you like what we're up to here, hearing from special advisors who have lived it and breathed it, to take you behind the scenes to share their stories and analyse politics today, then hit subscribe, hit follow, and make sure you never miss an episode ever again. That's it for Whitehall Sources this week. We will speak to you again next Thursday. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.